Hello and happy Friday. Yes, happy December indeed. My gosh, it's December 1st, you guys. That's wild. That's wild. The year just started, right? <laughs> Do you ever like look back to the things that you, you set out to accomplish and, and then think, oh no, <laughs> there, there's still a lot left undone. That's that's how I feel about this time of year. Hello, Chris and Anne-Marie and Lisa and Vince. Thanks for being on. Um, what is Welsh marches? See, I just don't know much. I don't know enough to know what that means. Marches? Is that an area? Welsh marches. That must be a city? A town, I'm guessing? A shire? A village? <laughs> I really, I'm geographically blind, um, but my goodness, you guys over there in Wales have had yourself a fun little week of partying, it seems, loving the videos. I, I particularly loved, Chris, the, um, the, uh, the bit with Bernie. <laughs> that cracked me up. <laughs> You guys are so funny and um, totally jealous. Wish I could have been there with you. I just, I hate it that there's just, there's distance. I, I want to be in your space. Can we just share space? I want to share space. I'm going to be in the same room with you guys on a regular basis. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Um, okay, let's let's just dive into the topic, shall we, before I talk us to death. Um, discipleship has been on my mind for quite some time. And I was really struck by Jesus's phrase, hold on, pray for spiritual, yes, pray for spiritual transportation, Welsh marches. That's what I meant. It's just an area of floodplains. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. I've got, I've got Facebook up on my phone and so I can see comments come through in real time. That's fantastic for me. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, it, his, Jesus says, come follow me, just really struck me hard um, the beginning of the week. And how many times, how many times have we actually read that phrase? How many times have we heard that said? How many times have we considered this moment where Jesus is, is talking to the disciples and, and tell, asking them, come follow me. And how often have we disregarded the moment and failed to sit in it and understood what that actually meant? We talk about discipleship in, um, in, in ways that are ungrounded. We talk about discipleship in um, terms that are not actually going to do anything for, for either party. And, and when Jesus said, come follow me, what did he actually mean? Bernie and I did in New Zealand. Hookah? Is that how you say that? Thank you. In the spirit. Yes, that's what it was. If you haven't watched this video, you guys have to go. I think it was on, I think Invictus shared it maybe. I know that it may be on Invictus Wales. I don't know, check. And you guys, this video is hilarious. I admit I watched it probably 10 times because I needed it to be longer than it was. So I just pretended like it was a continuation. <laughs> so anyway, um, 
<laughs> exactly, Chris. Hi, John. Um, so when Jesus says to them, come follow me, do we even understand what that meant? Like, are we willing to sit in this moment and, and really comprehend, wrap ourselves around this moment and understand what discipleship actually looks like? He is saying to them, come be in my space. Come be a, an irritant to me for the next three years. Come watch my every move. Come breathe your stink morning breath on me. <laughs> come share food with me. Come snore in the middle of the night. Come be obnoxious. Come as you are. Jesus is not inviting these people into a program. He's not inviting them into a, a workbook. He's not inviting them into coffee, a series of coffee shop meetings. He is inviting them to come be in his space. Do we, under, do we understand that? I think that we look at this moment and we're like, yes, that was good for then, but that's not going to work out today. But I think that we really need to get to understanding why that's not going to work out today. Why are we withholding ourselves from one another? Did you just describe me? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's funny, though. You both are distracting me, Chris and John. So um, I want to jump into to Matthew 4 because I think that there's some things that we need to understand before we really get into what it is that Jesus is doing in the area that he's in. So we need to understand that he's already had his encounter with John, his cousin, the one who is baptizing. And it is a baptism of repentance, right? So this, this is a very specific baptism that John is doing. And he is laying a foundation for the Lamb of God, because remember when he sees Jesus coming, he's like, behold, the Lamb of God, you know, and he he recognizes him in the, his fullness. He understands where he has come from and what his purpose is on the earth. And he rightly regards him. We could look at this and realize that this is the fear of the Lord, right? This is, this is John enveloped with the fear of the Lord because he's rightly recognizing Jesus in his fullness. And he's like, I can't even unfasten this man's sandals. That's how holy he is. And I think that's very interesting that he first draws attention to his feet, but we won't get into that. Um, but, but John lays a foundation of repentance and I think that that we could look back throughout revival history and realize that there is traces of, if not like full-blown repentance, there are traces of repentance that always go before the revival or the move of God, whatever it is, the outpouring, whatever it is that you want to label it. We, we know that these things have happened, that there has been these, these moments of outpouring that have greatly affected a people in a room, a city, a region, a nation, the nations. And almost always there has been repentance, deep repentance that has gone before. So we see 
John laying a foundation for Jesus to enter in and, and do the work of his ministry. And then we know from that point that he goes into the wilderness. Jesus travels into the wilderness and, and his mission is to, to fast and pray. And, um, and, and in that space, we also know that, that he is tempted over and over by the enemy and, and, and Jesus just, Oh man, don't you love this moment? I mean, it's like watching a a fight take place and 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 it's not even competition for Jesus. He's just like nice try. Right? Like like the devil tries to dunk on Jesus and he's got the block every time. It's just it's a fascinating moment and and then from there he goes in to um into Galilee. And, and this is, so we're going to start in, um, we're in chapter four and we're going to start in verse 12, Matthew four, starting in verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John was delivered up, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is beside the sea in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. Here again, we find ourselves in a moment where we must pause when there are specifics released in scripture, we need to have a knee-jerk response in these moments and start investigating. What does Zebulon and Naphtali mean to you and me? We have to go back to, to Genesis 49. This is the best place to start because it's the blessing that Jacob offers over his sons, over the 12 tribes. And, um, and so let's go there. We're going to jump over to, to Genesis 49 and let's just read what the, the blessing is. So Genesis 49, 13 is the blessing over Zebulon. It says Zebulon will settle along the seashore and become a safe harbor for ships and his borders will extend to Sidon. And in the foot, I've got the, the passion translation of Genesis out here. And in the footnotes, Brian Simmons adds, the people of Zebulon were the first to see the great light dawning. Don't you love that? The disciples of Galilee were like a fleet of ships carrying the light of the gospel to the nations. The tribe of Zebulon were known as merchants dwelling near the sea who traded goods with others. That's interesting, isn't it? Like, I think that's worth investigating. What? Why did Jesus choose this area, these people? Why was this his starting place? It's right next to a sea and a tribe known for being a safe harbor to set ships to sea. This is like the epitome of the gospel, right? Go and make disciples, right? Go and make disciples. So it's so fascinating to me that, that Jesus starts in a very specific tribal territory to start calling disciples. The land is already permeated with a blessing or a promise that was released by Jacob, by Israel, that it was a safe place for ships to be set at sea, to go out, to go tell. Now let's read about <clears throat> Naphtali. There's not much. Naphtali, Naphtali is a dough set free. 
who bestows beauty in his offspring. So I went and I read a couple of commentaries and Matthew Henry's commentary was so rich in breaking down what the people of this area would have been like, what this region would have actually been like. And he described it as a place of darkness, a place that needed the light. It was a place of hard working people who were under hardship. And so it would have been a a place of even an impoverished people. And we know that the first place Jesus goes to to recruit is the, the fishermen, right? And so these are men who are actually familiar with the sea and very familiar with their territory. But they're an impoverished people because fishermen would have been a low ranking people in society. They weren't exactly wealthy. <clears throat> so now that we've established the territory, we have a better understanding of that, that, um, that it, it was, it was not a, it wasn't a lush place that he chose to go. It would have been a place of darkness. But the thing is you guys, and then I want you to hold on to this even prophetically that when, when things for you appear, and I'm talking about spiritually speaking here, when they appear dark or shadowy, or maybe there's fog in the picture that you're seeing, this is Holy Spirit's cup of tea, right? Like we already know that the Spirit of God has has fallen on Jesus at his baptism. So when he goes into this dark place, he's not concerned whatsoever because he knows the power of the Spirit that has fallen on him. We know from the beginning of Genesis that the spirit of God was hovering over that which was dark and void, was formless, and then God spoke. So there is a, a an, an energy that is created by the spirit. This is just how I see it. There's just like this energy that's created over dark and formless and void spaces that he loves to bring detail to. And so Jesus isn't afraid. He's not afraid to bring the light into the darkness because he knows what he's carrying. The big question here is, do you? When you're seeing different things prophetically and and it looks dark and it it looks like there's no form in it, this should be a challenge that you rise up to, not run from. We are so afraid. We've taught ourselves to be so afraid of shadowy spaces. And we should be looking at it going, that's opportunity. That's opportunity for Holy Spirit to bring about light and form. Don't believe the story that the shadows are wanting to tell. The shadows have to respond to the light that you carry. They have to. So Jesus wasn't afraid of that. He goes into these shadowy places. And so my whole point in breaking that down is please don't quickly shut down a prophetic moment just because it's dark or just because it has fog in it or just because it's formless. Sit in it for a second. You don't have to be afraid. Just sit in it for a second because there's opportunity. Okay. We're in 14. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled saying, 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And to those sitting in the region, a shadow of death to them, light has risen. Oh, I love that. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim and to say, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And while he was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting the net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, come after me or come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately leaving the nets, they followed him. And going on from there, he saw another two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately leaving the boat and their father, their father, they followed him. Isn't it interesting that they were both, they both had nets. They both had nets in their heads. Two of the brothers were, were using the nets to gather and the other two brothers were mending. This is, what a picture. We don't have time for that. Go back and sit in scripture like this. Don't just rush past it. Sit in, in the nets. Understand the nets. What, what does that translate to when we get to the end of their life and, and have the full scope of what their ministry looked like? Right? You have um, the sons of Zebedee, John, and um and James and and what what does John do right like we have this beautiful book called revelation and in it there are letters to the seven churches and it is all about mending the holes in the church right so you see Jesus capturing these men in the very essence of what their job description will be as disciples Peter, he's catching things, right? And he is sent out. Look look at his, his initiation moment on the day of Pentecost. Was it 3,000 or 5,000? I can't keep the thousands. 3,000. He, he was speaking to 3,000 people when he stumbled out of that upper room. Whew, that's quite a catch. That is quite a catch. That's quite the first moment. Unbelievable. Crazy. Um, and immediately leaving the boat and their father, they followed him. Yeah, it, it is. It's an incredible response. They they didn't, they didn't even, I mean, we don't have record anyway that they stopped to consider what would this mean? And I think that we have to take into account here that because Jesus had fully understood what he was asking them to do, there was no need for them to take a break and consider what, what will this look like? Because the one calling them called them with an assurity. I'm in this. You want to know why people aren't following you? You're wishy-washy. I'll let myself in. We are wishy-washy people. We don't 
come to each other with an assurance of, I know what I'm getting myself into. I've thought this through and I know the calling and I have practiced not wavering. We've become such a private people and so interested in our own security, our own comforts, that we refuse to bring people in. Can you imagine what this was actually like? Jesus calls 12 men to be in his space full time, full time. Let's finish reading. And the report concerning him went out. Oh, wait, no, we, we skipped too much. Um, immediately they followed him. And Jesus went about in all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. <laughs> they had a front row seat, a front row seat to all of these things. Their, their immediate response is, yes, we're going to follow you. And they have a front row seat to, oh, wow, healing every disease and every sickness. That's crazy. And the report concerning him went out into all of Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those possessed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, so now we have not just a few men following him. We have crowds following him. Now, they're, they're not they're not in intimate spaces with Jesus like the disciples are. But Jesus's life is crowded. It is crowded in. He, he can feel people pulling on him. That did escalate quickly. He can feel the people pulling on him. And we know this because we have the story of the woman with the issue of blood. She touches the hem of his garment. He's being touched. He's being pressed in, like people are pressing in on him. This is a crowded space that he's in and people are trying to get to Jesus. And this woman risks everything just to touch the very corner of his garments. And he stops and inquires, who has touched me? Yeah, she is courageous. Because he knows that power has just gone out from him. He feels the release of power. So Jesus is very aware of these people that are crowding in all around him. He's very sensitive, very sensitive to the unseen realm. And we don't see him complaining about it. We don't see him saying, "Ugh, I'm tired. Ugh." 
send them away. Actually, he rebukes the disciples for saying that. (laughs) He's not even bothered by whiny, snot-crusted-nosed children. He embraces them. I want us to seriously consider the call. We get super excited and we have this burst of energy that that creates a little bit of momentum for us when it comes to the call of God on our lives. But we fail to sustain it because we have created a lifestyle that is about me, my wants, my desires. And we put our desires and our needs above the call of Christ on our lives. And I would say that in this season that we're in, in this space of of God wanting to release a greater level of glory, the call is to lose our lives. There is a hungry generation at our heels. And I think the big question is, is are they invited to follow you? The hunger isn't on the next, the the hunger problem isn't on the next generation. It's on those of us that know those of us that are a living ark of the presence of God. And we talk a whole lot about being a living sacrifice. We talk a whole lot about living, laying our lives down for the gospel. But it's all talk, you guys. We have to actually put our money where our mouth is so to speak. We can't enter into spaces like Zebulon and Naphtali that are dark and formless and expect to set anyone at sea with our current perspective of what our life should look like. We live out a private party mentality. Us four, no more can't be bothered. Oh, it's 9 p.m. Got to go. Sunday. Oh, 12. Got to get home. This is what we live like. We devote approximately maybe four or five hours. And I'm being quite generous. To offering ourselves to others. I can remember I was newly married and very hungry, very hungry, desperate, desperate to know Jesus. I was not content with what it was that I was seeing. I needed more and I needed more now. You know what I mean? And I was going to everyone, to 
anyone that I thought might have answers, I was going to them and I was pleading with them, like, just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And the thing is, is I was willing. At at 20 years old, I was willing to lay my life down to follow someone, to answer with the immediacy of, yeah, I'm ready. Nobody, not one person would take the time to offer me more than pat answers. They were generic regurgitations. Spent the next 20 years of my life aching for anyone to influence me at a level that my soul required. And there has still not been anyone willing to say yes to discipling me. We've got mentorship programs that we that we have access to that we can enter into. It's not the same. It's not the same. Why am I telling you this? Not to berate the people that didn't have the answers or were unwilling to draw our attention to the hunger of the next generation that are at our heels. They're ready to lay their lives down. Back in the spring, God said to me, Angie, I'm calling you to raise up martyrs, which tells me these are people that are are, are willing to lose their lives. They are half-hearted. the thing is, is they're not going to settle for a half-hearted mother or father. And I'm coming to you in the space of serious examination. It makes me tired to even consider, how's that for honesty? To consider what it is that Jesus did. That makes me tired. Immediately, I have the spirit of slumber wanting to come over me when I'm considering Oh my gosh, 12 people in my space at all times? Uh-uh. It makes me tired. But there's something inside of me that is hungering to say yes to this. To go back to the days of dirt roads and sandaled feet. Are you not worried about anything? You're just seeking the kingdom because you want what Christ wants. Jesus sacrificed his life long before the cross. Sincerely, when we really allow ourselves to sit in this space, Jesus sacrificed his life long before the cross. He gave of himself fully. It makes me wonder, you know, the story of the wedding when when Jesus and the disciples and his mom are at the wedding and they run out of wine. 
and Mary is so audacious in this moment. She's like, Jesus, do something. And he's like, woman, it is not yet my time. I'm sure that there are many angles that we can look at his response to her from. But here in this moment, in this conversation, I'm I'm wondering, was there a part of his humanity that was like, I'm not sure I'm ready. I'm not sure I'm ready for the response, for the crowding in. so funny, Chris, that you're bringing up unclean. I I think that's how we treat one another. We're expecting like this miraculous event to take place in the generation that's following us, that they're just somehow going to know what to do. If you want to know what the problem is with the church, it's us. We refuse to give of ourselves. If we are not going to be willing to sacrifice our sacrifice our lives right now, they will pick up whatever it is that they have access to and they will begin building. And they will not have the wisdom or the know-how because they aren't rightly acquainted with the things of the kingdom. But the mothers and fathers are. These are builders. They're not just those who want to lay down their lives. They're builders. They want to be those that are set at sea to take the gospel into the dark places. We've got to ask ourselves some serious, sobering questions. Is our life set up to take in disciples? Are we willing to make space? Are we willing to clear out a room? What I was going to say, Chris, in in context to the unclean, that's how I feel like we treat them. Like they're just supposed to know. They're just supposed to grow automatically. And we treat them as if they're unclean because they don't know. Because they're not growing. We've got big things on the table right now that require a response. Big things, life-altering things that require a response. And I think for the majority of us, we're more interested in being entertained on our pretty regular basis than we are in raising up kingdom people. And that's got to change. That's got to change. We're willing to release the big prophetic words, but we're not willing to get our hands dirty. So Father, tenderize our hearts. Tenderize us, tenderize us, tenderize us. Continue to tenderize us until the only thing we have left is a yes. And deliver us from a slumbering spirit, God. From a sluggish spirit. 
and give us eyes to truly see that when a dark and formless space is presented, we have eyes to rightly see and that we lay hold of the prophetic in those moments to bring about light and form. Jesus, we admit we can see the things that are on the table right now. And we know that you desire a response. I think you probably even demand a response from us. We will either quickly follow or we will turn away like the rich young ruler unwilling to give everything. Holy Spirit, help us carry a proper estimate of who Christ is and his worth. Let us raise up as spiritual mothers and fathers who say yes to inviting those to come and crowd in. Lord Jesus, we just want to be yours. We're going to be obedient vessels that will follow you everywhere, that will do what you say. Make us quick to obey. And ready us as a people that will rise up in our yes. Amen. All right, guys. Have a blessed weekend. And again, happy December. Love you all.